0: All right, hey, why don't we open up to the book of Isaiah? I know you're shocked. We're in Isaiah. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 50 this morning. Moving into chapter 51. Well, it was my freshman year at college. Uh, I had been heavily recruited out of high school. um, Somewhere upwards of 60 schools offered me full rides. I was a Street & Smith Honorable Mention All-American, a Coca-Cola All-American. I was playing uh, in the Blazer Pro-Am in the summer. I was going to be playing against Georgetown and Providence and Duke and Kentucky and Syracuse and Connecticut. And I felt that I had arrived. All that was left for me was to take my place among the elites, or so I thought. I stepped into summer scrimmages, playing really well, but this one particular practice, I stepped onto the court and Coach T, Coach Tyler, came up to me. Coach T had played for the Mavericks in the NBA for a long time. And he watches my shot and he looks at me and he says, Hey, Rass, man, your shot needs some work. We're going to have to teach you how to shoot. Now, at this point in my life, I was not following Jesus. All I had was basketball, and so my response was the opposite of teachable. Now, I didn't say anything because Coach T could have pounded me into the ground, but inwardly I thought to myself, man, my, my shot is what got me here. Who are you to change my shot? I didn't learn really anything whatsoever. So it was no wonder that after four lackluster years of collegiate bench warming. I got my chance to go play in the big leagues, the basketball league of Norway. It's okay, you can laugh. How many of you have that sticker on your, on your bumper of your car, the BLNO? Any of you have that one? Right? It's got the guy freezing instead of the guy playing basketball and passing, right? Most of you haven't heard of it. I hadn't either, but it was the only place I could play uh, professionally that was about to pay me. I played for a team called the Ulrich and Eagles. Now, while slightly humbled by my low-level move to an unheard of league, I still was a professional. I still wasn't truly following the Lord, so humility was not part of my life. I figured I have made it somewhat. It's just a matter of time before I get to the big leagues, big Euro leagues, the NBA. I just got to bide my time. So I show up to the first shoot around there in Bergen, Norway, and do you know what good old Coach Swan said to me? Hey, Ras. Your shot needs some work, man, right? No matter where I went, it seemed to follow me, and yet I'd made it all this way. What was wrong with these coaches? Well, the reality is, is that nothing was wrong with the coaches. The reality was something was wrong with me. I hadn't humbled myself. If only, if only I could get those years back and have ears to hear as those who are taught. Ears to hear as those who are taught. This is what we're going to be talking about today. This is the key to understanding the verses before us. This morning we'll be looking at the third servant song in Isaiah, these poems that look at this coming Messiah, this divine agent of God, that's going to roll out the plan of God and be very key to it. And we're going to see this agent, this Messiah figure, who we now know obviously is Christ, Jesus. He's going to act in a way of obedience, and He will show us what it is to have ears to hear as as those who are taught. And He will do this through obedience even in the midst of suffering. But this text, I believe today, will also give us great application. I think part of what our, our key for today is, is to look at Jesus and see His amazing nature and see His obedience to the Father. And that will lead us to the cross to understand that while He was without sin, He loved us so much that he gave his sinless life for my lackluster life. That's how much Jesus loves us. And that is key to today. But secondly, the application of what it is to follow in his image. We will look at Jesus' model of being taught and how our desire to be a law unto ourselves will hold us back from growth in Christ just like it did me my basketball career. It's amazing how many people I had in my life say over and over and over again, Oh Hans, you were so close. Now I praise God for not making it to the NBA because I would be dead in a ditch probably with some addiction, with some terrible relational interaction and I would not know the Lord. So I am thankful every morning that I wake up and see my wife and children in this church that the Lord took that from me. But, the picture still stands. If only I had figured out that last little bit of teachability, maybe that would have kicked me over into the growth that I needed to walk in basketball in a way that was free, It was almost easy, if you will. And I fear that so many of us in this church, because of that lack of ears to hear as those who are taught, we are stunting our own growth. And keeping ourselves from seeing Jesus massively at work in our life. Because again, as I've said many times, he won't force himself on us. So let's first begin by looking at the contrast of Israel's disobedience and the servant's obedience. That's the first thing we'll look at today. The contrast of Israel's disobedience and the servant's obedience. We're picking up in the middle of a text here where it really is based off of Isaiah 49.14. So if you look back just a little tiny bit, you'll see this argument that Zion makes. And Zion is a word that means Israel, means Judah, means even Jerusalem. It's used interchangeably for all of them, really God's people. And in 49.14 it says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Israel argues with God that even if God's plan of salvation is rolling out, as he said all throughout Isaiah 49, their argument is, well, that's all well and good, Lord, that you're doing this salvation thing, but look at my life. My life is, well, I'm in the midst of suffering. And so God's answer was to explain to them and say to them, guys, you can't look at your current circumstances to understand my love. You have to look at everything that I'm doing and everything I've done. And so he uses these examples. He talks about the fact that he loves them more than a mother nursing her child. A bereaving mother loves her lost children more than a foster parent loves her child or her children. And he uses these examples to say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I love you that much, Israel. But then he has to correct them and tell them. You see, guys, truth always is, let me comfort you, but then let me also correct you. And so in chapter 50, he uses more earthly relationships as illustrations. But this time, he's going to use them to correct Israel. Let's look at chapter 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord. And remember, anytime you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that means that in the underlying Hebrew, it's speaking of the name of the Exodus God, Yahweh himself, Jehovah, the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst." I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. He uses imagery here in the last, the last part to talk about the exodus, that he brought darkness over Egypt, that he led them through the water and he dried up the water in a sense, uh, made it red with blood so that the fish died and stank. He's saying, guys, remember who I am and remember what I promised you by covenant. Did I send you away with a certificate of divorce? No, you chose to be adulterous, he says. Did I have to sell you because I couldn't handle the debt that I took on? No, you took on a debt. You sold yourself into slavery. He's turning their question back on them. Wait, wait, You think I'm the one at fault here? No. The reality is is that you are the ones that have chosen division in relationship. And the reality was when God called, no one came. Not one Judahite remained in obedience. All, all were faithless. And the good news of what God says here, does that shorten my arm? Does that make it so I can't save? No, the reality of the good news of Jesus' gospel is that He does save in spite of that. God does not need us to bring us redemption. He alone does it. And he does it not because we deserve it. He does it because it's innate to his character. It is his character to save, but it is also his character to allow our will to play a part. He offers compassion and salvation to all of us, and yet he will not force himself on anyone. And so, this is the message of these first three verses. The disobedience of the old servant of God, the nations of Israel and Judah, it's bold-faced and cannot be debated. And he had offered his grace, but here's the problem. They failed to respond. You see, to fail to respond to the work of redemption leaves Judah and it leaves us without excuse. Parents, you know how this goes. Raise your hand if you're a parent in here, okay? Raise your hand if you've ever seen a parent at work in discipline. Raise your hand. Okay, so everybody should kind of know this one. How many times does this go very well? The kid disobeys and the mom or dad say, hey, brother, sister, son, daughter, whatever. Hey, man, you got to obey right away. I'll think about that. that that's, a good, that's a good suggestion, mom and dad. Let me go ponder it. I'm going to be over here, mom and dad. I'll, I'll go ponder it. Does that work very well? Okay, parents who raised your hand. Raise your hand if you think that's an appropriate response. Anybody? Okay. And yet we as Christians, God says, repent. Look at what I've done for you. Respond to the gospel. And we go, I'll think about it. No, the gospel demands a response. It demands a response not of saying, oh, I understand and agree with all of the Bible. No, it, it demands a response of this. You are God, I am not I serve you and am loyal to you alone. And from there we build. Here in the text, it's as if God was crying out to his people and they still weren't responding. And so he, acting almost like a divine narrator, he sets the stage for the main character of this cosmic play. He sets the stage for the servant, the servant of the servant's songs to step forward. But it's as if the curtain parts... And you know that he's there, but you can't see who he is. And the mysterious figure remains removed from full sight, but starts to speak from the shadows. And what he says begins in verse 4. Let's take a look. The Lord God, Adonai Yahweh. He's speaking of the God of Exodus. The servant says, the creator God, the God of the Exodus. He has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This begins the comparison... It started in chapter 49, but here it it takes the comparison of Israel and, and it runs up against the servant. And so we have this comparison of the two in their obedience and disobedience. And here's the list. If you read through all of 49 and 50, I would suggest doing that this week. Read through it multiple times and here's what you will see. You will see this comparison. The servant, Jesus Christ, the one that is here nameless but will come, when God the Father called, he answered. Israel did not. When God the Father wished to teach, Jesus listened and he was teachable. Israel ignored the teaching. They thought, well, we're the people of God. We kind of already have it all down, you know, we kind of know the basics. So we'll just go about our life and do what we do and God will bless us anyway, which is quite honestly a very Christian response nowadays. The servant learned God's will, but Israel was self-willed. We don't want to learn what God's will is. He should bless us. The servant did not turn back, but Israel did. They rebelled. The servant obeyed at any cost. Israel was disobedient the second that suffering kicked in and life was hard. You guys remember that, the Exodus story, right? Oh, manna from heaven. Oh, it tastes bad. God, you're terrible, right? I mean, that's kind of how it went, right? And isn't that you? Isn't that me? That's what we do. And the servant trusts in God's love, and yet Israel remains unconvinced. They had water parted. They had freedom. They had the gods of the Egyptians destroyed massively. They had food from heaven. They had quails coming in left and right. And yet it wasn't enough. I'm unconvinced of your love because my life is hard. Sounds like you and me. These last two lines here are the subject of the next portion of our text. The fact that the servant was obedient at any cost and he turned and trust, turned to and trusted God's love. Look at what it says there in verse 7. But the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, he helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. That means I'm not going to move. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them, all those that declare him guilty, will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. What we see about the servant here is this. Despite suffering, the servant will trust and obey God. Despite suffering, the servant will trust and obey God. Now, before I even continue, I want you to understand and remember that we, as Christians, while still being somewhat the old man, are regenerated in the image of Christ. And so this is not just what Christ did. He did it perfectly. We have already messed up, but we are to grow in doing this very same thing. That despite suffering, the servant of God will trust and obey him it's been said before, I think it's by uh, an Old Testament scholar named Chris Wright. If I, I, I might have that wrong. I don't have it down here, but uh, I believe one of his, his lines is, tenacious loyalty, that faith is, tenacious loyalty to a God I don't understand. Love that. Faith is tenacious loyalty to a God I don't understand. Man, once you get that, life is a whole lot easier. I don't understand. I may not even agree in my flesh, Lord, but I'm with you. That's faith. To choose to follow Christ, to give your allegiance to the God of the Bible, is to make the decision beforehand that you will empty yourself and submit to all that He is and wills. See, it's just like marriage. I didn't go in, I take you, Kelly, to be my wife as long as you don't upset me. When you burn the food, I shall walk out. So as long as you keep the food, okay, I will be here. No, I said, come rain, come shine, come sickness, come health. The only thing that will part us is death. So if she upsets me, if I upset her, guess what? We are still in that place. Tenacious loyalty, even if we don't understand. That's why marriage is used as a picture throughout the Bible of God and his people. You are submitting yourself to the journey of uncovering his truth no matter what it brings you. No matter how much confusion comes, you are loyal to the God of the Bible. And our highest priority as Christians needs to be following Christ and learning his will in all situations so that we can rightly reflect him. That is our highest value. We're really good as American Christians at asking, Lord, what's your will? Which house should I buy? The one with the three-car garage or the four? Lord, which, which job should I take? Which one can I get away with lesser of a tithe and get more money? Which one will give me more vacation? This is what I want. I want your will, Lord. We never really ask, Lord, in this situation of suffering, in this situation of pain, how can I become less so you can become more? What's your will? And his right response would be, I'll show you how you can become less and I can become more. No, that's not what I want but that is his will. The suffering servant that we see here, he is struck and beaten. His beard is pulled out of his cheeks. Ladies, I know you might know what this means with plucking, right? Okay? Guys, go home. Some of you do need to pluck, just FYI, guys. Okay, (laughs) Take your wife's tweezers, grab onto some of your facial hair, and rip it out. It is not pleasing. His beard was ripped out. He was beaten and bruised for us. And yet He continued in obedience. This is glimpses of what He would fulfill for us for the plan of the Father. Think of the garden, guys. Regardless of how bad it was, He had uh, drops of of sweaty blood coming out of his, His forehead. And yet, He was so stressed and He was so... Suffering, and yet what did he say? He said, Father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Obedience. Now, does tenacious loyalty mean that there is never conflict? That there is never questioning? No, see, I think that's a big problem in fundamental Christianity, that there is not room made for questioning within that tenacious loyalty. Loyalty is the bounds of commitment within within which you stay fully committed. Loyalty is what gives you the safety and assurance to be able to have conflict about those things you don't understand. My wife and I, our marriage has grown in ways never before possible in the last six years. And part of it has been in the midst of giant conflict about things we used to be passive aggressive about and just shove under the rug. And the reality is, is that our loyalty to each other makes a safe space. Everybody's about safe spaces today. It makes a safe space in which we can have conflict. Well, it's the same thing with Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus on the cross Remember, he was just as much man as he was God. And in his humanity, he didn't get it fully. So he cries out, "Ilahi, ilahi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think he was like, oh, it's part of the script. Line, oh, Eloi, Eloi, lama Like, No, that's not what he did. He was crying out in heartfelt questioning, Father God, Adonai Yahweh, where are you? And yet, immediately after that, what was his next statement? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He didn't just have a switch, both were present. Father, I am yours, and yet I don't get it. That's a healthy relationship. He kept the boundaries of his relationship intact, his allegiance intact, and admitted his confusion. Yet he had obedience in the midst of suffering. Guys, why are we safe to trust God even if when it makes no sense? Because of the cross. We can forever trust our God. No matter the suffering, no matter the hurt, the pain that you are in, you can trust Him. You can trust that His ways are best. His ways are strongest. Well, Hans, I've, I've tried his ways, and it just leads to more pain and hurt and loneliness. People hate me. Well, that means you're in good company. Because you're walking through the world as he did. And our goal, our highest value as Christians is unity with him, not caring what other people believe. He stepped into a world that did not trust him. And he sacrificed it all. Why would we not do the same in response? You see, obedience isn't built in the midst of the comfortable and easy times. Obedience is built when our will, our desires, our understanding goes up against his. I love it when people come up and tell me that my children are so obedient. Because in one sense, they really are. My children, like innately, they just don't do a lot of stuff wrong. Doesn't mean they're not crazy. Doesn't mean they just innately don't do a lot of stuff wrong. But whenever somebody says, man, your kids are so obedient, I want to say, just wait. No, no, you don't understand. Just wait until that one's will comes up against my will. When I say John or Jaden or Kara, you need to obey daddy. Because I have the best interest for you. That's when they learn whether or not they're obedient. Because they struggle with their own will and wrestle and figure out, do I want to trust that he has my best interest? interests in mind? Or do I want to sit here and say, I don't know, because that might be a little bit painful. That's when we know obedience. Jesus didn't question. He didn't rebel. He said, I may not understand, but I will obey. He learned through suffering. This is what the Word says. You can write this down. Hebrews 5.8. Although He was a son, speaking of Jesus... He learned obedience through what he suffered. See, the prosperity gospel of America takes that completely out. No, you're only, You only know you're obedient if life is really good. No, guys, you know you're obedient when life stinks and you still cling to Jesus. That's when you can be assured that you are tenaciously loyal to a God you don't understand. Hebrews 2.10 says this, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Regardless of whether or not it made sense to Him, He obeyed the Father's will. This is John 14.31. What I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Look at what He attaches to witness to? Being nice? Being kind? Watching Christian movies? Listening to Christian music? Going to church? No. Obedience to what the Father commands. And he asks the same thing of us just in the next chapter, John 15, 10. If you, he's speaking to his disciples, he's speaking to us, Keep my commandments. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this is the crazy part. Look again with me at the text of Isaiah. He says things like, The Lord God helps me. I've not been disgraced. He's going to vindicate me. Who will contend with me? Man, if you know the story of the crucifixion, you might think, Jesus, you are in lava land. If this is truly for telling Jesus he was put to shame the Romans not only contended with him they killed him. He suffered the most disgraceful death a human can d- can suffer, crucified, naked, most likely suffocating slowly a crown of thorns on his head. How can he say this? Well, look at the last statement there, verse 9. Behold the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus looks to the eternal truth. He looks to the fact that God, the Father, has declared Him innocent. Well, He was innately innocent, but it's the Father's opinion that matters. And because of Jesus, we now stand in that same place. No one can declare those who truly follow Jesus guilty. And He knows that truth will come out in the end. Let God be true and every man a liar, the Word says. And at the end of days, all things will be made true. If you keep your eyes on yourself and your immediate situation, or you look at all those who think you are legalistic and judgmental and too serious and too severe for following Christ, all you must do is cast your eyes on the future. What will last? Will those people's opinions, will your job, will your sports, will your hobbies, will your comforts, not even your marriage is eternal. What will last? Eternal relationship with the Father and eternal relationship with His sons and daughters. That's what matters. To not believe that, to not let it play into your life is to exchange the joy of the gospel truth for the counterfeit joy of the temporary lie. Suffering is like a fire that burns away the blinders of our life. And what we are left with in those moments is an amazing understanding of what is most important to us, to what we are most devoted. We realize in what we trust the most, just as when Jesus had everything removed, he knew all he had was the Father. It is the same thing for you and for me. And so Isaiah asks in this next verse, knowing that this is who the the servant is, he asks who's going to be his followers? Who are going to be his disciples? Look at verse 10 there. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? In other words, guys, I want you to write this down. We must decide whose light we will follow. We must decide whose light we will follow. It's kind of an odd title for a section. Where do I get it from? Well, it's here from these verses. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. And Hebrew guys, that is Shem Yahweh, one God and one God only. And rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. In other words, if you're coming up with your own truth, you're in trouble. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. What? Why would he command us to do that? Here's why. This you have from my hand. If you do that, in other words, you shall lie down in torment. The Word of God, Scripture itself, calls itself the light of God over and over again. It is the written understanding of the manifest Word of God, Jesus Christ. And the servant is one who listens to God's teaching. You ever notice in reading the Gospels how much of the Scripture is just flowing through Jesus all the time? God is calling the believing remnant to show their devotion to Him by submitting their minds and the action of their lives to the words of the servant. Now, we as believers in the triune nature of God, we know that Jesus is God. But at the same time, here, he's given to us as one who teaches us and whose life we must walk in. Well, three times this week, I've had discussions with people who ask me this question. How do we really know if these are the words of God? Three times I've had that discussion this week with people from this church. How do we know? I'm going to give you a mini-teaching with a number of verses for you guys to write down and study on your own. And we're going to go through this quickly, but I'm going to explain it to you. Here's how God has communicated with mankind. First, write this down. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a. A just means the first portion of verse 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a. Here's what it says. Long ago at many times and in many ways, he wasn't He wasn't keeping himself to one way there, one method. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here's basically what that means. God used to speak in direct revelation to men. They would literally go, "Uh uh-huh, Lord, okay, here you go, guys. That doesn't happen the same way anymore. It does not happen the same way anymore. You know why? Because that says it doesn't. But Hans, I know people who are prophets and prophetesses. They're false. You can read it right there, guys. He speaks to us through his Son. That's how he's done it. The way that they knew whether those prophets were false in those days is, did what they speak come true? Or did God publicly acknowledge them as his prophet? So if you guys go to Mount Hood and it starts to swirl with smoke and there's lightning bolts and you come down with two tablets and God says, this is mine. Listen to him. I will probably listen to you. If that doesn't happen, don't listen to the person. Okay? Next, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Paul confirms that this Old Testament that was given through these prophets of God, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all these men of God. He confirms that they are useful because the scripture he's talking about to Timothy is not the New Testament, it's the Old. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So Paul says that Old Testament is good. Then Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, I agree. And he quotes from it time and time again. And he teaches in the midst of his life clarification on that Old Testament. You guys have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And he assembles for himself a group of disciples. Can anybody remember what the word disciple means? Student or learner. One who is taught. Hey, if you're, uh, let me just put the kibosh on something here. If I hear any more of you say, I'm just not a reader. I'm not a student. Okay, you just said that you are not a disciple. You may not read quickly. And you may not be prone to sit down and study, but you are absolutely a student if you are a disciple. Jesus came and taught us this. and He taught taught his disciples, and this is what they did. They took what they saw and heard from Jesus and declared it. This is what 1 John says. John hung out with Jesus. He even reclined on Jesus' chest. That's how well he knew Jesus. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. In other words, he heard Jesus' teaching, which we have seen with our eyes. I watched Jesus' life, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. I hugged my brother Jesus concerning the word of life. That's Jesus himself. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you, so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him, and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Write down John seventeen twenty through 21. I do not ask for these only, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer to God the Father, but also for those who will believe in me through what? How will we believe in them? Through the disciples' words. Let's read that again. I do not ask for these disciples sitting in front of me only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And this is why he commanded us to go and teach. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make, what's that word? Which means? Learners "Learners of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What's that word? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age you think teaching is important to the people of God? 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Well, how do we know, Hans, what you're teaching us is right? There's so many manuscripts and so much different evidence. Here you go, guys. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God that we have in front of us is powerful. It's been criticized. People have tried to destroy it, and yet it's remained whole in its message. God gives us his light through his Holy Spirit and the word of God. You can't separate the two. You cannot separate the two. Well, I feel in my spirit that in this case, God's word doesn't apply to me. No, that is the spirit of Satan. That is not the spirit of God. Why would God contradict himself? Don't have sex outside of marriage, but I really love this guy and my spirit tells me that it's okay. Why would he ever do that? He wouldn't. So how does our faith come? From hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. There's your many teaching on why we trust the Bible, on why we follow it, on why we don't doubt it. If we go astray from this light, we get ourselves in trouble. Because, as the author puts in Isaiah, we start walking by the light of our own fire, torches that we have kindled. And, guys, look at the very last line of verse 11. What will be your end if you walk by your own fire? Read it out loud. you shall lie down in torment. Let me give you an example from church history. In the 1600s, there was a German mystic theologian named Jacob Bema, who declared that believers ought not to be guided by Scripture, but by the Holy Spirit, who inspired the biblical writers and, in his words, even now inspires believers. Here's a direct quote from him. I have enough with the book that I am. If I have within me the Spirit of Christ, the entire Bible is already in me. Why would I wish for more books? Why discuss what is outside while not having learned what is within me? He was a direct precursor to George Fox and the Quaker movement. Fox had a similar opinion and called this idea of living by the Spirit without the Word of God a Christian's inner light. But George Fox quickly recognized that people were breaking apart from his, his leading because they all had their own opinions. See, this is what happens when we walk by our own light. And the splintering of the church happened so fast that he quickly threw a band-aid on it by emphasizing two things, love and community. Thus, the Quaker Friends churches were born. And the same idea runs rampant through the church today, known as Pentecostalism. Christian after Christian declares that they know what a certain scripture means, even though it doesn't mean that thing, because the Holy Spirit tells them so. You might say, Hans, you talk all the time about community and love. The word community simply means one thing. It means having unity around things you have in common. And if we do not have at the center of our community, our church, the Word of God, we might as well cash it in. If all of us are walking by our own light, we might as well cash it in. The community of this church must be a group of people that covenant together that we will wrestle through Scripture until we arrive at God's truth, not our own. Not just randomly proof texting our way into our own opinions, but breaking down Scripture in context to help our Help us understand what God's will is. You see, this is the reason that when a black and white command of God is disobeyed by Christians, they think they can walk in the Holy Spirit. It is the band aid, the junk drawer of Christianity. Well, I believe that I'm right because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to me. This is why the word says, Test the spirits. Not all of them are from Jesus. What does the spirit do for us? Here's what John 14:26 says. The helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will, what's that word? teach you. Yeah, see, Hans, the word the, the Holy Spirit it teaches me. No, he will teach you all things and what's the next part? bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How do we remember what Jesus has said if we've never read it? If we're not taught about it? We must immerse ourselves in the Bible as a whole. Read it over and over and over again daily. Just move through it. Study it. Let it wash over you. Let it be your best friend. Recognize that it is your lifeline out of your own will and opinions so that you can walk in the light of God. Because, guys, at the end of the day, when you disagree with someone... If their opinion is based truly on black and white Scripture, your opinion is not fighting with them, it's fighting with Scripture. I know right now that some of you are still stuck on that thing I said about people that call themselves prophets and hear from God. They do not, and you don't have me to wrestle with on that, you have Hebrews chapter 1. You must wrestle with Scripture. And whether it is at this church... Under the teaching of the elders of this church or at another, I would beg of you to take these principles with you. Because the church is full of people who are being taught wrongly and who aren't having ears to listen to the servant. Do not follow the light of any single person, including me. Always check it against Scripture. That's why I go through Scripture the way I do. Because at the end of the day, this is what his command is to us. Write this down. Listen to the servant. Have ears to hear as those who are taught. Listen to the servant. Have ears to hear as those who are taught. Let's look at chapter 51, and we're going to read through uh, eight verses here. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. And makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. He's saying basically, guys, if you listen to me, I'll restore. By not listening to me, you're destroying yourself. Verse 4, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For Allah, and the word there is Torah, it means both law and teaching, will go out from me. And I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanished like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. In other words, for those who desire it and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Verse 7, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Again, that word is Torah in the Hebrew. It means law or teaching. Fear not the reproach of men, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. You guys notice a pattern there? Verse 1, listen to me. Verse 4, give attention to me. Give ear to me. Verse 7, listen to me. Do you think God's trying to get our attention? What do you think he's trying to say to us? What's that? Listen. He's saying, listen. To show our allegiance to the Creator, we must submit to the teachings of the servant, his Son, Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit don't go off on their own tracks telling people different things. They're unified in spirit and word. And we can submit because he has shown us his love through his death on our behalf. Jesus died and three days later he resurrected, showing that he had victory over death. I understand sometimes why my kids look at me and go, I don't know if this is in my best interest. I don't know if they know the way to get to where I want to go, my kids might say. Do any of you want to have resurrection after death? Then there is one Sherpa that we follow. There is one guy that knows the trail. And he cries out to us and says, listen to me. Through our submission to him, we become, as it says there in verse 1 of 51, chips off the old block. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, he says. Remember when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, I will call you Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petros means a little little piece off of the bigger rock. Peter, by declaring him Christ and God, he said, man, you're, you're a chip off the old block. You're obedient." And Peter would fail, and Peter would struggle, but he would then be restored to live the rest of his life doing what? What was it that Jesus restored him to do? Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Teach them. Teach them about me. He'd spend the rest of his life walking in obedience, teaching. Maybe not perfectly. I doubt perfectly. But through the submission to God... Listening to his teachings, immersing ourselves in his word all the time, we will start to begin to look like Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but a lot better than we are right now. Now, let me pause a minute to clear something up because I know that I go fast and that sometimes I throw some academic stuff at you, and I've heard rumblings through the congregation of statements like this I need a seminary degree to understand the Bible. Can I please, please clear something up for you? That is absolutely dead wrong. No one needs a seminary degree to study the Bible. The Bible is written for every person, every time, every place, every culture, every geography. You can understand it. You know why I go to seminary? Because it forces me to study it. I am in the Bible more than I ever could have imagined, and I love it. I love it because I am walking in the water of life. I want the same thing for you. If you desire to go to seminary, do it. If not, make yourself a pledge. Pledge to Jesus your time to read through his word over and over and over again. It is not a book of famous quotes. It is the living water that we refresh ourselves with every morning. How many days can you go without water before dying? Three. How long ago was the last time you sat down to study the Word for more than a 10-minute devotional? But secondly, I want to state to you very clearly that if all God was asking of you was for you to sit with your Bible and learn it alone in the woods then why would he state over and over and over again that we are called learners and disciples and those who are taught with ears of those who are taught? Why would he add command to command to command for a group of people known as the elders of the church, bishops, pastors, teachers, to teach the people? The autonomy of the saint teaches that you can go learn everything you need to know out in the woods. It's wrong. Controlling and manipulative pastors say, you can only learn it from me. That's wrong. There is a mix. A teacher is necessary to help you step out of yourself. Group discussions around the words are help, The word is helpful because it pulls you out of yourself and recognizes, helps you recognize when you're being a law unto yourself. And guys, this is why when people are in blatant sin and simply want to be a law unto themselves, They pull back from the church. They stop coming to gatherings. They stop going to home group. They stop going to small groups. And then they make up excuses about, I just feel so disconnected from the church. I would turn you to chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. We're not disconnecting. You are. Because you want to be a law unto yourself. So we must be people that listen to the servant. And have ears to hear as those who are taught. What keeps us from doing this? Let's finish off with this last list here. Barriers to teachability. I'm going to assume that everyone in here, because you're here today, in a sense I'm preaching at the choir because you want to be taught. Amen? Amen. By a guy who also is being taught, who does not have all the answers but I know the guy who does. And so, here are the barriers to teachability. These are what we need to watch out for in our life. First thing, misplaced... Oh, one too many. Go back. Misplaced values and busyness. Misplaced values and busyness. This is an easy one, guys. All I got to add to this is, well, I got better things to do than read the Bible that's it. Misplaced values and busyness. I got better things to do than go be taught at church. Question for you, how many days a week are you taught by the kingdom of darkness? Six and three quarters. Now, do you see why I think Sunday is so very important for you? And if you miss one Sunday... Guess how many days in a row you're taught by the kingdom of darkness before you get the water of the word again? 13. Now, if you are in devotionals every day of the, that, that, which you should be anyway, awesome. But there is a nature uh, or, or something that happens in the midst of the congregation misplaced values and busyness. Next, what keeps us from being taught desire for autonomy? We want to be a law unto ourselves. We come to churches with one critique in mind, does this pastor agree with me because I am the arbiter of truth? You know how I know who those people are? Those of you that come in, and I know some of you are going to get really uncomfortable right now and you do this the whole time. We'll see. We'll see if he believes with me. Desire to be autonomous. Number three, the prosperity gospel lie. Because of the infiltration of the prosperity gospel, which is, if God's happy with you, things will go well. If God's unhappy, things will go badly. If you're rich, God's really happy with you. If you're poor, God's really upset with you. Most of us in this room would say, I don't believe that. But in actuality, we do because we tricked ourselves into believing that God would never call us to discomfort. So we can't learn in discomfort. I have to get out of discomfort as much as possible. I hear this all the time from people. Life wasn't working the way you asked me to. You kept giving me all these teachings and things I was supposed to do, and then the world hated me. Guys, that's what Jesus guaranteed you. That is the affirmation you're walking in the right way, is if life is uncomfortable. If you start walking in comfort, things are a bummer. So, for example, when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, He cannot be my disciple. Is that going to make life uncomfortable around the in-laws? Is that going to make life uncomfortable for you if your spouse starts to walk away from Jesus and you remain true in allegiance? Well, Hans, you know, I need to love. I need to be nice. No, you don't. You need to remain in allegiance to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus can't truly mean that I'm supposed to obey him against the opinions of my parents, my siblings, my spouse, That would cause discomfort. I like the way I'm going. Well, you're going to lie down in torment. Obedience is learned in suffering, and suffering often comes by disagreeing with the world in order to remain obedient to Jesus Christ. The fourth one that will keep us, the fourth barrier is bad theology of the Spirit. This is rampant in the American church. This is Jacob Bamey. The Spirit will just teach me everything I need. I can trust my own gut. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things. And it tells us we must test the spirits. Don't believe that just because you believe it, it is the Spirit. Check it through the Word. Number five, a false understanding of love. Can I just give you guys... A very, very important truth here. Those who love you the most will speak to you the hardest truths. They will scream, Stop it, at the top of their lungs when they see you headed for destruction. The word says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A true friend biblically wants your holiness more than your happiness because they recognize that if your happiness gets in the way of your holiness, they will not have you around for eternity. They want your holiness more than your happiness. They're willing even to lay down their own friendship with you on the altar of obedience to Jesus Christ. Is your friend, is your family's counsel guiding you towards Christ and his commandments or away from him in disobedience? Here's how you know. If the Bible says yes and they say no, you should run from them as fast as you can. They are not a friend. They are leading you to destruction. But Hans, all my Christian friends and family, they all have the same opinion. Is it the same as the word? If not, they are all wrong. Last one. Barriers to teachability, allegiance to someone other than Jesus Christ. This falls in line with the one right above it. I have noticed this a ton in the church. We as humans, the way that we learn is we learn something and then we associate new things with that old something. And so the innate nature of the family that God created was mom and dad are supposed to be the models of Christianity and you follow them. But what's happened so often, especially in this church, because of the age group that we have, is people grow up watching their mom and dad who profess to be Christians, but don't go to church, or not under the submission of anyone, or not under the submission to the Word, never open their Bibles, live a life that is based on materialism and the American dream, and not following Christ, and then when somebody comes along and says, don't listen to that person who is leading you wrongly, they say, but they're a Christian, whether it be a pastor or a parent or a friend. Well, this last pastor I said, he said this, check the word. If I say something that's not in the word, you need to dismiss it. If an ex-pastor said something that was not in the word, you need to dismiss it. Base all your decisions off of the doctrines and the lifestyle you see in that person's life. Test everyone, test me, but test not based on your own spirit, test according to the word. In other words, think, does his statement agree with the word that is right in front of me, not, do I agree with what he's saying? Well, Hans, how do we then know who to trust? Well, that's why our section of Scripture today is so amazing. We follow the model of the servant, Jesus himself. See, Jesus is one that we will follow. Why? Because he, even he, even God himself was teachable. And woke up every morning with ears to hear what was taught by the Father. So you can ask yourself when you're looking at someone whether, whether or not you should trust them. Are they teachable? Have you seen changes in them in which they humbled themselves when other people corrected them? Who are they taught by? And I am free and happy to answer all of these questions for you according to myself at another time are they taught? Are they submitted? When they go to church, do they go to be taught or to see if the pastor agrees with them? And the moment the pastor does disagree, do they listen in humble submission, checking it with scripture? Or do they say, I knew that that pastor or that church was wrong and move on to the next? Do they live their lives popping in and out of churches at a shallow shallow level? My word to you is don't ever follow anyone who isn't teachable if you want to check, go up to them, your parent, your pastor, your friend, and ask them who they are accountable to, who they are submitted to, and who they listen to in order to be taught, and see how they respond. See how they respond. If there's defensiveness, you've got your answer right away. If they lovingly say, these are the people, and I'm so glad you asked, Then you know that they're in a good spot. I want to encourage you again, even if this is not your church, even if you're visiting, I want you to take these principles and this idea and go back to your church or a church that you feel is home. And I want you to apply those same things there. For mission, we must create a culture in this church where we understand that the purpose of why we were put on this earth is to accept the free gift of God's grace through Christ's death on our behalf, and then to be taught by that same servant that was the atoning sacrifice, growing in understanding and obedience to his word, and then applying it in our lives so that we can display his goodness just as the servant Jesus Christ did. So this week, here's your one point of application. I want you to walk out of this place and I want you to commit this week to being made in the image of Christ to morning by morning awaken with an ear as those who are taught. This week, I want you to commit to every morning getting up and reading through this section of Isaiah on into Isaiah 52:12, because that's what we're going to go through next week. I want you to read it every morning, multiple times. Go over it and over it and over it and have ears to hear as those who are taught. To begin our response to the word that we've heard this morning, we're going to stand together and we're going to walk through four questions from the catechism that we have on the back table there. This is what we use in family worship at my house, and I know many of you do too. And it's back there for free if you want to grab one. We would love it if you guys would go through this and use it to build categories for your children and even for yourselves in which you can start to learn the word of God. And so the way we do this is I read the top part, the italics, uh, as a question. And then we all respond together with the bottom part. And we'll do this with four different questions. First, what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? That he is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that God grants him irrevocably to all who believe. How does the Holy Spirit help us? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts, and the desire to obey God, and He enables us to pray and to understand God's word. How is, how is the word of, uh, how is the word of God to be read and heard, with diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. And lastly, what is the church? God chooses and preserves for Himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another.